through the winter months when I don't like to go outside and shoot, I will tape up my site. I'll just put cardboard on both sides of it, tape it up, duct tape so I can't see it. And then I have a big, big uh, bale target in my basement that I set up and I stand like five yards away and I just shoot shot after shot after shot. I cover up my site because I don't want to be focusing on aiming. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wild Dispatch. I'm Robin and I'm back with more skills and stories from the wild. I'm excited to introduce a new guest today. Lee Hauk is a bow hunter from Alberta, which is a province which I guess I would call the Midwest of Canada. He's a guy who fell for the outdoor and bow hunting way of life hard from a very young age. He's an accomplished bow hunter, he's a bow tech, and he also has a great way of breaking down really technical stuff into edible bite-sized pieces through his YouTube channel that he has with Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads, where he works. He's a huge source of technical knowledge, but it shouldn't come as a surprise that he's also got quite a few great stories up his sleeve too. But it's time for me to stop waffling and hit the play button. Here's Lee. Welcome! To the Wild Dispatch. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the Wild Dispatch. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate you having me. Ah, I'm excited to have you here, dude. So <laughs> we met, like, uh, I guess it was by chance, maybe a few weeks ago. Um, I was... Yeah, I was in a that moment, you know, when you're on the on the way to like a good hunt or like a hunting season. I'm actually heading to South Africa soon, so I was in the process of figuring out uh, some new broadhead choices and things like that. So, yeah, I, I just made a phone call, just wanting to ask a few questions, and it was actually you that picked up the phone. And um, so, I mean, it was just a couple of simple questions, but we ended up having a long conversation about all kinds of things. Right? It was like broadheads, bow tuning hunting stories i think even a bit about like obscure very custom arrow building <laughs> so um yeah it, it became very clear very quickly that you are an absolute goldmine of knowledge and stories so that's why you're here today man <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself well yeah thank you i don't know if goldmine would be the term but I've, I've definitely got some experience with this stuff i live and breathe it every day um, so yeah, like you said, we met just Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads is a company that I have a pretty heavy hand in running and, um, I, you know, Tooth of the Arrow is a broadhead company, but what I've really been trying to build the company out as of the last, uh, few years is a lifestyle company, an archery education company, uh, a hunting education company, right? I, at the end of the day, I could care less what broadheads you shoot. I want you to be a better bow hunter. So, um, when you call Tooth of the Arrow, you're going to get me on the phone, um, and, you can ask me whatever you want. And that's how we met. So a uh, uh, small bond over our love of the metric system brought us into a, <laughs> into a deeper conversation about some things. And yeah, no, I'm just glad to be here. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely did. That's true. Yeah. I guess after hearing a few of these things and hearing some like nuggets of information that you had for me, it made me just hungry for more. But first, I guess it makes sense to start from the beginning that's kind of what i like to do is i just want to hear a bit more about your story so where did you grow up 
Well, I'm born and raised in Calgary. Um, and my I didn't start hunting, hunting, obviously, until I was 12 or 13. You're not even allowed to hunt until you're 12 in Alberta. Um, okay. But I grew up with hunting. Uh, my dad's a big time sheep hunter. Um, he's pretty well always in another country. I think he spends about half his time here in Canada um, chasing sheep. So I've been around this for my whole life. And, um, you know, I, I liked I liked going deer hunting and I didn't get exposure to bow hunting because he doesn't bow hunt until uh, I was 11 or 12 at the Grand Slam Club Ovis convention. I, I went to with him in Reno and that just literally changed my life. Um, so I've been lucky enough to have some amazing mentors. Um, Archie Nesbitt gave me my first bow. He's, you know, one of the greatest bow hunters of all time. And, uh, you know, some mentorship from him and some other great bow hunters uh, around Alberta growing up. And it just led me to where I am today, which is, I mean, full time. I, I run the broadhead company. I give archery lessons. I have a service shop. I build arrows. Like archery and bow hunting is all I care to do. I like it. It's uh, focused, but also diverse within a whole, within a whole world and community. So, is there is there a, like a big bow hunting scene where you are? Oh yeah, there's a lot of bow hunting in Alberta, and I think part of it is the fact that our seasons are very conducive to bow hunting. Um, all of Alberta is different, but at least in my part of Alberta, south of Edmonton, pretty much. Um, your bow season is September 1st to October 31st. You have a full two months before the rifle guys get all in November. So um, there's absolutely no reason not to bow hunt if you're an Albertan. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting access to a whole bunch of extra hunting time anyway, right? So yeah. And I'm guessing it's a bit less cold at that time that you're going to, right? Like, or maybe it's still pretty cold the whole time. Usually. I mean, I just, I shot a white-tailed doe the other day on our first snowfall and that was I'm not toughened up to it yet, so it was a little cold, but come end of November, it doesn't bother you that much. <laughs> yeah, I guess you, your skin gets a bit thicker by then. Oh, yeah. But that also, um, that, you sent me that picture. That looks like a massive doe. Maybe they're just small from where I am, but what where, what, what kind of, uh, was that a whitetail or a blacktail? Yeah, that was a whitetail. Um, okay. I get that a lot just from even younger deer I've shot in Alberta, people are always like, wow, that's a monster deer. And I think the bodies of Alberta deer and Saskatchewan deer are just big, you know, she was a big doe, but I mean, when you see all the pictures of the guys hunting and, you know, killing deer in Florida and, you know, Kentucky and stuff like they got some great deer populations down there, but body size wise, further North you go, the bigger they get. Yeah. It makes complete sense. I guess uh, the opposite where I'm like down in California, I mean, Northern California, but still California. They look like they're peanuts around here, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's still good. Still meat in the freezer. So it's all good. Oh yeah. So you said that you had some mentorship, um, when you were getting, getting into hunting, was that predominantly, I mean, like even before bow hunting, was it your dad that was mostly teaching you the ropes with that stuff? Well, like I said, I, I've been raised around hunting so i always knew about it and i liked it it was cool and i i mean i grew up on wild game so that was a big part of my life but i never cared to put a ton of time into it until i found bow hunting which he wasn't something he could help me with because he just doesn't bow hunt um so he he's pretty well connected in the hunting world and he connected me with some of the greats here you know and if if anyone watching this is ever or listening to this has ever heard of uh guy on a buffalo uh rick Gwynn, he's a guy i spent 
a ton of time hunting with as a kid and still do. He taught me so much about bow hunting and, you know, just many great mentors. I'm very lucky to have had. Yeah, that's cool. Amazing that you had such a access so early on. I mean, if anything, that's definitely something I can say. I, I was a bit of a late, uh, what's it called? Late onset hunter myself. So the thing that is hard when you're trying to figure stuff out is just, um, I mean, you've got YouTube, you've got other things. So that's great. There's a load more info than there used to be, I'm sure. But yeah, trying to get into it and like figure everything out. <laughs> It sounds so nice to have someone to tell you uh, all the things that you're doing wrong very quickly. So that's good. It's a tough thing because there's so much crap information on the internet and there are so many people out there who, you know, they hunt two weekends a year, but they're an expert or, you know, the guys who are, you know, I've been bow hunting 40 years, but they hunt a weekend or two a year. Well, I'd, I'd get more than that time in, in two years. Right. So the, but, Archery and hunting on the internet is the epitome of an industry full of crap information. So that's what I'm trying to do here is just, you know, information through experience and just that practical side of things that people need to hear. Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. And I agree with you. It was definitely tough when you're like super innocent, don't know anything. There's a lot of information trying to sift it out. But I think you slowly start to work out where the good resources are and the people who have a lot of experience and all that kind of stuff. So it does make sense. So do you have any uh, stories about like hunting with like legends, these guys, these amazing hunting people that kind of uh, were like taking you under their wing, you kind of anything pop into your mind about like early experiences or lessons learned or cool stuff that happened? Well, Rick Gwynn in particular, the guy on the Buffalo, he, I mean, he's been, showing me the ropes since I, I mean, he would come pick me up at my house and take me out because I couldn't drive um, when I started hunting with him. And um, his way of teaching me how to hunt was very much, uh, you know, take me to an area, tell me very limited information and throw me in the deep end. Um, and, it, and it works. And I made a lot of mistakes and, uh, and heard about it from him. And that's how you learn. And I'm a firm believer, like what we were just talking about, that the best way to learn hunting is to put your boots on the ground and pay attention to your surroundings. Don't pay attention to, you know, what you read in this blog or in this magazine or whatever, just go do it. And that's really how these guys, uh, gave me an upper hand in hunting. I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't say upper hand, but they, they knew that before I did for sure. Yeah. In a, I mean, this sounds it might be sound completely different, but also similar in some ways in my own head is that that's, I think, partly why I've managed to have some success, not enormous amounts, but I've managed to kind of feel like I've learned a lot in the last, well, I guess, four years of bow hunting, five years of bow hunting because of my family connection in South Africa, going over there and spending some time hunting for like longer periods of time and having lots of opportunities. You know, that's the thing when you, when you're over there and you, could get like five or six stalks in in a day that's a lot of room to make a lot of mistakes <laughs> yeah yeah so then through that i guess by being a dummy so many times in succession you get to like okay i made that mistake this time i won't do that then you get to the next stage and or the next point of the stalk. oh i made a new mistake but i'll try and learn from that you know so no um, i mean that's completely it man and i'm I make mistakes every day I'm hunting and I'll tell you a quick story about one that I, it keeps me awake at night and it just happened a few weeks ago. It was opening day in Northern Alberta 
and I we found this great big bull elk bedded in some canola and we had permission and this bull was laying right in a sprayer track of this canola just as they do right because it's the most comfortable spot about 300 yards in so I uh, it was just miserably hot out but I got my bow and got all geared up and spent a couple of hours working my way down the sprayer track and never did I think this would work all I could see was antler tips but this was clearly the biggest bull I'd ever been on. And, you know, I get inside a hundred yards. I'm like, wow, this is actually might happen. But you know, what you always expect is you'll get to 40 or 50 yards and you'll blow them out. Right. So I managed to get to 20 yards in this bull. Could not believe it. I was in the opposite sprayer track. using the left. I was in the right. And I thought, well, this canola, I, and I can't believe that he is still dead asleep. As far as I can tell, I have to cross the sprayer track to be able to see what's going on and make a decision. And, um, but that's going to make a heck of a lot of noise. So like very carefully, I crossed the six feet of canola and I see him laying there completely on his side. Like if you ever see a horse laying there and look, they look like a dead horse, you know, 320 inch bull elk laying there like that. And I honest to God thought this bull was dead. It was opening day. I thought somebody had shot it and I just tracked a wounded Uh, bull. Yeah. And I didn't, take a minute to process my thoughts and i just made a little bit of noise to see if i could get a response and in one second that bolt was completely gone and my heart sank like you know i've never had anything like that happen to me and it was just immediate you know i made a massive massive mistake that any logical bow hunter make but when you're in that moment it happens but yeah learn for next time oh man that's so that must be so heartbreaking and it, it it's funny it reminds me um like it, it makes complete sense like because something's so still you're like oh it's already dead but also i guess next time what next time you're just going to put an arrow in it just for good measure right well i mean i thought there's a greater chance of this bull having been shot dead opening day and i'm stalking it as it's dying than there is a bull of this size who has obviously lived many years and lived through many hunting seasons letting me get this close i thought yeah. there's no way yeah um so I talked to some some guys who I know who do a lot of mule deer hunting in canola, and their advice to me was perfect. They said, when you're making that stock up through the canola, collect little pebbles, put them in your pocket. And when you get to that point where you're 20, 30, whatever, from them, and you need them to get up and shoot, take these pebbles and throw it over top of them. So it's a fairly natural kind of quiet noise, but coming from the other direction, they'll wake up and look that way and giving you your chance. And that's genius advice. I wish I knew that. Yes, before that, yeah, should in theory give you potentially a broadside quartering away. That'll be perfect, man. Yeah. Oh, a friend of mine a couple of years ago was hunting pigs in a in a public area, and he'd been really putting boots on the ground for a long time. And he saw a, a pig sleeping, and you know made a stalk, everything got in close, 35, 40 yards, and uh, drew back and shot it and then that had actually already been shot by a hunter and it was a dead pig (laughs) and he was that's the thing he was so gutted about i was like but i mean what can you do like just you know he shot it and and then when he got up as soon as he got within about 10 yards of it he said that he caught like a whiff and was like oh no this is not (laughs) this is not good Um, anyway we digress we digress so Oh yeah. I'm curious, like Alberta, I've never, I mean, I've spent a little bit of time in Canada in general, but, but like what's hunting like there, you know, like what's kind of on offer, what's the kind of vibe? Like, I mean, it sounds like you had some great hunts 
I mean, from if, if your Instagram is anything to go by. Um, yeah, what like what kind of species is a kind of common thing? I guess we said whitetails. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm obviously extremely biased, and I'll be the first to admit that. But I think Alberta is the greatest place in the world for a bow hunter. Um, I mean, on the western side of the province, you're in some of the greatest Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep country there is. I mean, I I don't know if Alberta or BC would have more, but it's pretty close on who has more Boone and Crockett uh, bighorn sheep coming out of the province. And um, a huge amount of it is on general tag. So we can be doing bighorn sheep on a general tag every year we, if we want, which is incredible. Um, no way. Uh, yeah. And we used to have mountain goat. We still have them here, but um, they, they pulled those tags uh, last year, which is a shame. Um, yeah. And we do have some caribou in the north of the province. Can't hunt those anymore. We do have grizzly bears. Can't hunt those anymore. But we can hunt black bears. You can kill two a year in Alberta. Uh, you can kill three whitetails a year in Alberta. You can kill up to two mule deer a year in Alberta. And the mule deer hunting is insane in Alberta. Um, a friend of mine shot like a 249-inch buck a couple of years ago on opening Whoa. day. Just like <laughs> nice. some people, I've shot elk smaller than that, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's incredible the game diversity and and pronghorn and cougar it's elk moose it's amazing the diversity you have in alberta and the cool thing is you can be hunting most any of these things it and have two or three or four tags in your pocket and you have no idea what you're going to end up hunting that day because you're they're kind of all everywhere regionally of course but you know northern alberta for example i have a mule deer and elk a moose and a bear tag in my pocket and you have no idea what you're actually going to drive home with that night yeah. And that sounds amazing, right? Like it's in, in some ways, perhaps a bit more like hunting used to be the more opportunist you are just going for a walk. And, uh, if you, you know, whatever you come across is going to be good, good eating, then that's, what's going to end up in the freezer. Right. Or yeah. I, I mean, we face the same challenges everybody does in terms of public land is hard and private land is tough to get access, but you know, you spend your time and maneuver around that. The hunting here is unbelievable. Absolutely. You were saying about bear. You got. I bet you've got some good bear hunting stories, man. Like two a year. Have you? Um, I mean, you've, you've you've hunted bear with with a bow much. Yeah, I. So I. I think I have eight or nine bears now. Um, and I wow. spent a summer guiding bear hunts. Uh, so yeah, I've got some pretty neat bear stories. Um, not grizzly bears. I wish. I wish we could hunt those here. Um, but, you know, the black bears in Alberta are incredible because, uh they they don't they know you're there and they don't care about you whatsoever really Just another animal to them yeah like when i'm hunting there's actually a picture on my instagram of me with a bear and i'm wearing this right here at this exact sweater and i shot that bear at under 10 yards he walked i was on the ground just kind of hiding in some like the the lower branches of a big green and it walked right by me and looked at me and I just kind of was like, said like, Hey, keep moving, keep moving, you know, because it was, it was pretty close to me and I ended up shooting at six or seven yards. But point being, have you ever been to seen a white tailed deer look at you at six yards and just keep moving? They don't care <laughs> at all. Um, so I've, I've had some interesting bear experiences, you know, there's black bears can bluff charge you for sure. I don't, there's very few cases of them actually hurting you, but I've had them bluff charge me. I had one, I had to shoot at about two yards, two or three yards with my bow um, that was giving us grief. And, you know, a lot of times you go into an area that you're baiting and uh, the bears are there. And the only way to make them go away is to charge straight at them. So 
was working at the bear camp. Um, my buddy Taylor Lowe with uh, Red Willow Outfitters here in Alberta, he he showed me the ropes. He's like, no, man, they're there. We need to bait. We need to keep moving. Run straight at those bears and like you're charging them. And I couldn't believe it. And then by the end of the by the end of the uh, season, you're just charging bears every day like it's, you know, getting coffee in the morning. <laughs> wow. Definitely got to have some stones for that first charge, though. Hey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first one's really scary. <laughs> Wow. So how, I don't, forgive me if you already said this, but how many years ago did you start bow hunting then? Uh, I started, I got my first bow when I was 11 or 12 and I'm okay. 24 years old now. Okay. So, so you've been going you know, a while then. Over half my, I'm not very old, but over half my life. So what did you, you know, you, you obviously hunting before that with your dad, what was his, what was his, you know, you got super obsessed with bow hunting. What was his thoughts on it? You know, was he, was he on board or was he kind of oh, yeah. more cautious about it? Oh no, he loved it. He was super pumped. I mean, my dad has the utmost respect and admiration for bow hunters, um, which I really respect. He's just never had the desire to do it. You know, the type of hunting he does, if you, if you Google my dad, Brian Hoke, you'll see it's all mountain hunting from, you know, one of the stands he's in, he's in Alaska right now, hunting a grizzly bear. Last week he was in Russia um wow he stuff that if he was doing it with a bow he just wouldn't be able to do as much as he does so um but no he he has so much respect for bow hunting and right from day one he was all for it and then when i decided that basically i want my career to be bow hunting and archery i mean no one's been more supportive than him that sounds amazing i bet he's got some good stories as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he's also he's also a, a surgeon right is that correct yeah yeah and if uh if anyone here has seen our YouTube channel, I have a couple of videos. So he's a doctor and a surgeon and he's been hunting and, and doing that for, you know, way longer than I've been alive. So he's, he's got some really good info on there about kind of the anatomy of the site that the medical breakdown of shot placement and how animals die and stuff, which is something you don't get a lot. So check that stuff out if anyone's interested. Yeah. I mean, I've watched those videos and they are fantastic. It's super interesting. I mean, it's like incredibly focused, but like, obviously that's what we're into, right? You want to understand all those things and yeah, having that knowledge and that understanding of just exactly the structure of all the systems inside the, the body is, yeah, that's, I think that's pretty invaluable versus, you know, the normal kind of target that you just shoot at <laughs> where it's like a red dot on a, on a diagram, you know, of a, of a deer. So yeah. That's just another level of understanding, which I'm hoping will, will definitely help me in the future. Um, so did, I'm guessing then because of that knowledge that your dad has and, and that understanding, was he super help, helpful then in, in like shot placement? What did he tell you when you were first, first hunting with a bow? What was the kind of, did he give you any kind of simple advice? Well, yeah, when you first get into bow hunting, the first thing you learn is, you know, rifle, you kind of just, you can hit him on the shoulder or you know, straight up from the leg and it doesn't matter if you hit bone, they're going to go down with a bow. You want to go up and then back a little bit um, because you want to avoid bone at all costs. So, and that's your common shot placement philosophy. And um, like I said, we got like a 40 minute video on YouTube, breaking this down and super nerding out depth, but uh, <laughs> right, right off the bat, my dad was telling me like, it just, it makes sense to shoot a smaller broadhead, something that's going to penetrate deep and shoot them basically where you'd aim with a rifle. Because if you look at 
shot placement if you look at an animal's lungs just let's just say a deer and you go up and back from the leg you're actually aiming at the back of the lungs so your margin of error is great one way but if you miss a little bit back well then you're in delivered guts and that's terrible if you go straight up from the leg that is the center of a vital picture so aim there but have a broadhead arrow combination that allows you to get through anything you might encounter there and that's where you know, at tooth of the arrow and, and what I do on YouTube and stuff, I'm trying to break this mold in archery that you need a two inch cut diameter and that, you know, you need a 700 grain arrow and all this stuff. Like I'm just trying to break that stuff wide open because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so really you're saying like penetration is the most important thing, right? hundred percent accuracy. No accuracy is the most important thing. And then <laughs> penetration. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess, um, like a nice Brucey bonus, as we'd say in England, this is probably a reference that makes no sense to anyone, but like a nice bonus of that, then that if you have a smaller broadhead, then it's probably going to be more accurate. I'm guessing because there's less, it's acting 100%. less like a, like a wind vane on the front of your, uh, on the front of your arrow. A hundred percent. The more compact your broadhead is, it, it all comes down to weight centeredness. Um, a field point flies perfectly because a hundred percent of the weight is in line with the arrow shaft. So whether you're selecting, you know, our broadhead or mechanical or, or whatever, pick a broadhead that has as much of the weight in line with the arrow shaft as possible. And that's, what's going to make them fly like field points. Okay. I'm curious, like you, you had all this understanding, you're getting really into archery hunting, you know, hunting uh, with your bow there's obviously a, an element of upkeep required to be shooting lots, practicing lots. Like at least that's what I've experienced. You know, things start needing attention. At what point did you start working on your archery equipment on your bow? And was that because you wanted to, or was it because you're like in the middle of nowhere and didn't have access to like the resource of people, other people doing it? <laughs> exactly. The second point, the latter. Um, I was in Wyoming. 14 or 15 years old. And, uh, the night we got there, I'd go out into the range and just, you know, make sure my bow's dialed after the flight and everything. And I had, I knew nothing about my gear other than how to shoot it and, you know, how to sight it in. And my D loop broke, which obviously I, I should have seen that my D loop was fraying. And, but I was complete beginner. I had no idea that that was a problem. And my D loop broke and I'm in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. Um, so the next morning, had to miss basically a whole day of hunting to go uh, drive two and a half hours to uh can't remember what the shop's name was in uh in laramie wyoming and uh get a d-loop fixed right and for oh. anyone who knows how to tie a d-loop so that simple. is ridiculous <laughs> you know i it take i can do it in less time it takes me to brush my teeth right so when we got back to calgary um, my dad took me to the bow shop here and was like teach my son how to tie a D loop and give him what he needs to do to do it because we're never doing that again. And that just totally opened my world up for, for all of this, which of course is a, a massive rabbit hole. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. It's no, I mean, it's good, right? Like it's really good that your dad did that. So, so what, at what point then were you like, okay, that was really good. I learned all this information. Now I need like, that's it. I'm sold. I need to get, cause you, I've seen some of the videos uh, where you capture stuff, which I believe is actually where we're, we're chatting now. You've got like a lot of gear in there. Yeah. Like when, when did that transition happen? Was it sudden or was it gradual? 
Oh, I, I dive into things pretty quick when I get into them. Um, <laughs> like I have a lot of hobbies, even other than this, and I, I dive into things pretty quick. Uh, but yeah, we're in my shop right now. If you've uh, seen me on YouTube, this is where I film everything. Um, I started listening to the knock on podcast really heavily, John Dudley, and basically yes, everything yeah. I've learned is John Dudley and my own trial and error. That's pretty well everything I've learned in archery is just two sources myself and Dudley and uh it, it's a rabbit hole that you go down and down and down and down until the point where you own a bow press and you own an arrow saw and for me the big last step was I bought a string jig and I make my own bow strings now and I sell bow strings and um just pretty much I, I realized if there's one more piece of the archery picture that I can take into my own hands well I'm gonna do it no matter what it takes to learn and now yeah I do everything so wow that's next level like making i mean yeah i have i have some of the gear and i'm like learning as i go but like making your own bowstrings that's very cool like I'm, I'm curious like what's what's the perk of like making your own i guess you have a bit more control in like the number of, is it like the number of strands or like how does that affect things well there there's a lot of good string manufacturers out there i'll start with that in canada i have not found one that i loved um, I needed a bowstring replacement quite a few years back, like right when I was getting early into this stuff, I was probably 16 and I ordered some from a company here and they were just horrendous. And I didn't know anything about bowstrings and I could tell they were horrendous. And uh, <laughs> so I just looked into what it would take to get this stuff. And it was, you know, it was a good $500 investment and man, it took me forever to figure out how to build a good string. But, um, to, I guess back to your question, what's the benefit of making your own strings? It's cool. It's fun. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. Um, I do it for a lot of people, you know, I made some money doing it and whatnot, but um, I just, the biggest benefit to me is when I shoot an animal, I love looking at my bow, my strings, my arrows, even the broadhead. Now I, I just, you know, I had a huge hand in designing a broadhead I'm hunting with. So it's just so cool for me to look at all that yes. and know I had a hand in everything. That's, that is so true. Like, so interesting. I, I've got to ask, I've got like a couple more questions about that. You, I, you're making yeah. me have loads of things pop in my mind. <laughs> so you said that it was like obvious that that string that was available to you, that you got locally, you know, that, that it was terrible. Uh, what was, what was it that was wrong with it? Uh, just, just, it's sloppy. Like you don't have to know anything about bow strings to tell whether or not they're at least the craftsmanship is good. Um, yeah. You know, when you get a good quality bowstring, go to a bow shop. And when you see the brand new crisp, crisp string on those bows, those are great. I mean, they're, they're pumped out in about three minutes on a machine. So they don't have this long-term stability as I can get out of my strings at home, which I stretch at 350 pounds for two days kind of thing. But um, you can tell that it's crisp and it's clean and it just doesn't look messy. For, right off the bat with this string that, that I got, um, it just looked extremely, it was like a paint by numbers bowstring is what it looked like. <laughs> and um, I mean, there's a lot of factors in the bowstring that you can't see, you know, peep rotation is uh, that, that comes down to a huge list of things that occur during the string building process that you can't just see. But um, in terms of general quality, if your bowstrings look ugly, they're probably not very good. Interesting. Okay, that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna now look at bowstrings with a fresh pair of eyes and see if I can see anything. I mean, I'm sure it'll probably be obvious from what you're saying. 
so then i guess it's kind of assumed then the strings that you build then that you you're able to combat the things like peep rotation and all that kind of stuff in the kind of way in which you build them is it just about time attention to detail or is it like pre-stretching the string or sorry this is things you can tell i don't know what i'm talking about here. no it's okay <laughs> man this is entirely stuff i learned trial and error like there's not much information about bowstring building out there and the good bowstring builders don't want to give out their information um i'll give out some information right now though um <laughs> okay good so if you are getting into string building i'm going to nerd out for a second um things that influence peep rotation um overstretching or understretching both will influence peep rotation when you have your string uh, lay it out before you twist it both sides of the string all strands basically need yeah. to be perfectly equal tension and if they're not you're going to get peep rotation um, when you're putting on your servings the the end servings the middle serve the center serving if you allow the string to twist underneath that serving you're going to get peep rotation like the list is huge and it's a huge amount of work but there is a science to it and there's a way to do it perfectly yes it seems like a lot of the stuff with archery equipment follows those kind of criteria at least in my experience building arrows like there's every single step there's so many steps things that you can pay more attention to and get right and that ends up with a really nice consistent arrow in the end so it sounds sounds like yeah there's kind of common ground for a lot of stuff in in archery i'm guessing yeah um, yeah and as much time as i put into string building i will say i nerd out about it but uh I would say it's one of the lower things on the spectrum in terms of accuracy. Like you want a good string that's not stretching and that, you know, your knock fit isn't too tight and stuff. But the, uh, if you're trying to take the next level in archery, there's a lot more things I would hope you'd look at before you start building your own strings. <laughs> okay. Good to know. It's not that worth it. <laughs> um, it's funny. You made me think uh, of a conversation I had just a few days ago, you, you saying about the kind of sense of, fulfillment of being like involved in the process of like the broadheads and the strings and like tuning your bow and everything like that. I was having a really interesting conversation a few days ago with someone who is connected with um, like a group of like the original Bushman hunters in South Africa. And um, they, they're culturally, they have a super interesting thing uh, as part of their hunting community. It's like a group effort. Always. They have the person who's the best at shooting the person who's the best at tracking the person who's like the bow builder and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that was interesting to me that he said is that culturally the prestige goes to the person who made the bow and the arrows. Mm. It, it isn't actually about being the person who shot the creature. It's about the person who had the knowledge and the understanding of how to make the instrument. So there you go. Culturally in that way, then you are, you're ticking all the boxes. <laughs> well, those guys still got an upper hand. I'm not making my own bow, uh, but no, that's, that's pretty cool to hear. Um, you know, that next level, like guys like Clay, Clay Hayes from alone, who's making his own bow and surviving with it. That is, you know, hats off to you. I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely next level. That's for sure. So I got to ask, like, you've got a lot of knowledge and you've like been building this whole stuff up. Like, at what point did you kind of switch into it becoming a business like you 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 know like building strings tuning bows all that all that kind of jazz well i mean i i took over an entire room in my dad's house when i was in high school to 
have an archery shop and <laughs> it just seemed like the logical thing was to try to make a little bit of money doing it too um so i just built up a small client base in calgary um and you know kind of beer money throughout school and university and then um i went to university at the university of calgary i took finance and i figured i would just stand up you know working downtown at a big company or whatever and i did a number of internships and kind of my path was at the end of my schooling it was go wear a suit and tie downtown every day, go run a broadhead company and, you know, figure out a life in archery. So it was a very easy decision. And, uh, but I mean, I guess I've been trying to make money in archery for, since I started, you you got, if you have something you're, you're good at, or even trying to get good at, you should be trying to, you know, make the most out of it in every way you can. Yeah. I definitely think it's, um, it's much easier the level of motivation you can achieve, right? If it's something that you're really passionate about, then yes. you are able to just push so much harder and have so much more excitement and energy in the thing that you're doing. This is all very obvious things I'm obviously saying, but yeah, trying to do a job in something that you're not passionate about is definitely, I can say from experience, that's hard work. <laughs> no, but it matters, man. Like, I'm glad you say it. It sounds obvious, but it's so easy to go through life taking the safe route, the easy route, you know, and, you know, sometimes taking a risk can pay off. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. So you work uh, with Tooth of the Arrow right now. How did it come about that that kind of that job or that connection with those guys begin? Were you were you using their products first? Yeah, um, I I had a number of, I was on a number of pro staffs, right? I'm sure a bunch of people listening to this do the pro staff thing. And I was on a whole bunch of them and wasn't happy with the broadheads I was shooting. So I just approached Tooth of the Arrow years and years ago about um, being a, a staffer. And, you know, you just kind of tell them like, here's what I do for hunting. I travel a lot, chasing super slam, blah, 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 whatever. And basically I was getting discounted products in exchange for promotion for a couple of years. And, uh, the, the owner Luke, who now is me and him running the company. Um, he made a job posting just saying, I'm looking for someone part-time who can help get our broadheads into more archery shops in the States. Um, and it was perfect because I was in university. I could do this on my own time. It was like a few hours a day was all I was doing. I was like, great, let's do this. I uh, applied, got the job with Luke, and it just exploded. I got us into over 100 new shops in our first year, build up more responsibilities to the point where, like I said, I had two paths out of university and Luke offered me, you know, full-time work to take to the Arrows marketing and sales and make it your own. And here I am. Yeah. And you've been generating, I must say, like I was, I've been watching some of your videos, obviously the, the, um, the stuff with your dad and the, like surgical advice, but also a bunch of other stuff as well. Some really helpful, um, videos on there. Like you are churning them out at a rapid rate. Like there's a, just so much information. I mean, you've got to be pretty organized to have that kind of level of machining them out fast. <laughs> it's not organized, believe me, but, uh, uh it's, I try to keep a, a video a week is what I try to do. And definitely there are weeks where I'm just out of ideas, but you know, I'll, I'll have a conversation like with someone like you, I wrote down a bunch of ideas for videos from our initial phone call that we had that day uh, a week or two ago. Um, 
it, it just sparks you and I'll go in and I'll film four or five videos in one day. And you know, there's a month of content right there. Oh, great. Done. What I'm curious, what were the, uh, what were the, what were the things from our conversation that made you think of content? So, uh, I talk so much about, uh, aerospine and spine matching on the channel, which is something I hope we get into the importance of that here before we're done. Yeah. Um, but you brought up a point to me that I hadn't thought about. Um, we both shoot ethics, archery, long post inserts, right? They have like a two or three inch post and then an external sleeve. I love that system. Like check out ethics, archery, seriously there. It's yeah. a, it's a system that gives so much structural integrity to the front end of your arrow. I've never had an arrow break off anywhere before half using that system. Okay. Yeah. So there's that. The point you brought up to me is I, I talk a lot about arrow spine and spine matching is super important. You cut a quarter inch off your arrow um, that changes your spine. You have to take that into account when you're building your arrow. You mentioned to me when you put in that, super long post is that effectively doing the same thing as cutting off your arrow because now you're adding a completely rigid end to that arrow and i thought that's like that is genius i have never thought of that and i think absolutely <laughs> it would so i haven't quite figured out how I, how or if i need to account for that in my spy matching process but it's been top of mind for a couple of weeks now yes no oh, it's good to hear <laughs> i'm glad that i kind of triggered something Oh, yeah. um, it's definitely in my mind, I'm also thinking that there's got to be more applications of this, this idea of like a stiffening insert. Um, you know, I mean, the reason why this came about, I should give a context is because I am a, what would you call in England, a lanky chap. <laughs> I've got very, uh, very long arms. Like my arm span is enormous. So, um, I'm like six, four, but also even given that I've got like kind of slightly freaky like uh, monkey arms so i think i have a 33 inch draw and so obviously Crazy. yeah the issue i mean it's great in some ways because you get like some free power <laughs> but then the issue with that is you are if you want to shoot any kind of poundage you instantly get into having very heavy arrow shafts like very, full length i have to shoot 32 length yep. shaft you know and so uh shooting a 200 spine arrow um you want to have a bit of weight as well because you know i don't know i just feel like arrows fly a bit better when you have a bit of weight up front too so just balancing all of that and then having a stiff enough setup was the thing that was really tricky for me so that was just something oh, yeah. like you said that i discovered so i still feel like there's there's more there's more in there right like there's definitely like inserts that are either solid or very thick with like something drilled out of the center so that they're not ridiculously heavy aluminum or aluminum as, as, as Americans would say, there's gotta be something to play with there. Like maybe there's a product or something. I don't know, but yeah, a way of effectively really reducing that arrow shaft in, in like the flexible part of it and still having weight and stability and not having to somehow create really ridiculously, um, stiff spined arrows. Cause then it just gets super heavy. Well, I mean, you're in an incredible niche in archery. You consider yourself very lucky to be there. I mean, I, I think I'm in a niche in archery. I'm not a big guy. I'm only 5'10", but I have a 31-inch or 30-and-a-half-inch draw length, depending on the bow, um, 70 pounds, right? So I don't have a problem keeping a 520-grain arrow going, you know, 290 feet per second. So I get a lot of this on my YouTube channel of people saying, like, okay, well, what about us? What about the 27-inch draw, guys? You're even 
a step beyond B. Your 32 inch draw, like that's, but it poses its own problems, right? Because you are going to be extremely limited in your bow selection. There's going to be maybe one bow from each company that you yep. can shoot. And some companies won't even have a bow that you can shoot. Um, so then about the, the arrow spine thing for you, I mean, it is something to consider. Does having a long post stiffen your arrow because you're effectively shortening the flexible carbon portion or does it not matter? I don't know. It's tough. Like with a lot of these things, I, I, they keep me awake at night wondering if, am I spending a lot of time thinking about something that matters in theory, but no human is good enough to prove that it matters or does it actually <laughs> matter? And I come across a lot of that type of stuff. Yeah. I think it's a fun mental exercise though. Anyway, right? Like if I think there's always some kind of reward or, or benefit in incremental improvements anyway, right? Whether they are good for everyone or not, then it's still, I think it's still good for us as humans to strive for something better, even if it's a little bit better, you know? No, I do too. There's a few things that I think people need to ignore in archery and in the technical side of archery. But um, in general, if you can make yourself 1% better than you were yesterday, I think you should do it. Okay. So that poses um, an interesting question, or you've created a question in my mind. You said some things are worth attention and some things are worth less attention. What are those things? Yeah. What do you think? Well, the number one thing that's worth attention that people don't give attention to is spine matching. I talk about it. People are probably sick of hearing me talk about it. Um, <laughs> but basically, spine matching is the process of building an arrow that is mathematically perfect for your bow. Um, and it's, it's hugely important because your bow at your draw length and your draw weight um, produces an exact amount of energy on every shot. It's not a range. It's one specific amount of energy that is produced on a shot, right? Yes. So when you look at a spine chart, you say, okay, I shoot this draw weight and my arrow is this long. And I shoot 125 grains up front. I need a 300 spine. Okay. Well, if you, if you end it there, you've, all you've done is you've gotten your arrow in the range that your bow needs. It, you're basically an arrow has to be built in such a way that your arrow is designed to take a certain amount of energy that your bow produces. So spine matching is matching the amount of energy your arrow is designed to take with the exact amount of energy that your bow produces. So if all you do is look at a spine chart and go build your arrows, all you're doing is getting yourself in that range. But we can think of it like a bell curve, right? There is one perfect spot where your arrow is made for your bow and you can veer off from there. Um, if you're not spine matching, you're missing out on accuracy. It's as simple as that. So that is something um, you need to pay attention to more than most people do. And I'll I'll pause there to let you chime in before I keep going because I could go all day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it, it makes absolute sense. Um, I, I think that it's kind of, I mean, you've done a great job of explaining the principles of it. I wonder if going into more detail right now might be, because um, <laughs> it's so nuanced, isn't it, for each person? Yeah, it is. But you, I remember you telling me that there's a tool, I think, uh, that people can use online that's like a really good starting point for <clears throat> calculating these things. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Archer's Advantage. Uh, go in there. If you Google Archer's Advantage online, um, it costs, I think, 10 bucks a year. I'm not sponsored by them. They don't even know I do this for them. If you guys want to sponsor me and you're listening, give me a call. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's like 10 bucks a year. And you go in and you input uh, 
every detail about your bow to make the model of the year, your draw length, your draw weight, your current arrow speed, your entire current arrow setup. And then basically it gives you full freedom across every bow manufacturer, across every arrow manufacturer to play with any potential setup you want and have a graphical representation of how well it's going to work with your bow. And you play around with it until you find your the arrow shaft you're going to use, the length, the front end weight, the number of veins, all of this until you find the perfect build for your bow and you can see it. It's they lay it out perfectly for you. And then you go build that arrow. And I've done this for, you know, probably approaching a hundred setups now and uh, for clients and for myself. And I've never had a single one that didn't come out of the spine matching process. Take that arrow paper tune every single time you can shoot any fixed blade, any quality fixed blade out to 80 with your field points every time. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I mean, it's good to know that there's something so reliable. I, I actually must confess, I haven't used that, but I definitely start using that now. I mean, I guess I kind of found a thing that worked through process of elimination and realizing that things weren't quite right. And then like we talked about before, but so I'm curious then are there other, what are the other kind of most common things that, or problems that or questions that people come to you with, you know, is there anything that you would love to kind of share now that's going to be helpful to people? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, all the time running a fixed blade broadhead company, I get the the question or comment, like I can't get these broadheads to fly with my bow. Um, that happens all the time. And something I want, I would tell everybody about that is it doesn't, like I said before, it doesn't matter if you're shooting us or, you know, any other name of fixed blade company out there. There's so many good ones. Um, if you're shooting quality fixed blade broadhead and your bow is in check, they're going to work. If something isn't working and they're not flying, it's don't just blame the company or the broadhead or the product that like archery is a deep topic as, as you know, I'm completely <laughs> nerding out here. There's a lot to it. Just take a step back and look at something that you might be doing in your, is your bow properly set up? Is your, having, are your arrow spy matched, right? Are your arrows squared off? Like, um, that's something I want people to pay more attention to is just taking that accountability, uh, for their own setups. Yeah. It is also the, um, kind of sad reality that I have to remind myself of sometimes that the most variable thing in the whole, uh, interface <laughs> is, is ourselves as humans potentially. <laughs> oh yeah. I've definitely, Absolutely. definitely had some moments talking to mechanics where I'm like, Oh, this thing seems to always happen. And they're like, yeah, it's probably you <laughs> like, oh, my heart that hurts, but you're probably right. Maybe I need to go back to the drawing board and think a bit about the way that I'm shooting and if I can adjust that too. So I guess it's also a thing to consider. Well, that's it. And I, I feel bad when I tell people call me and I kind of break it down for them. I feel bad because, you know, people call me and tell me I'm, I'm shooting 70 pounds and 30 inches and I have 400 spine arrows. It's like, well, your arrow, you need new arrows. It's as simple as that. And it, it sucks to tell people that because I get it. This stuff is not cheap in yeah. any way. And, yeah. you know, you get kind of an emotional attachment to the money you've spent. And I completely get that. So I, I do feel bad breaking the news to people sometimes, but um, it's a lot of research that needs to go into this stuff. Yeah, it is definitely a tricky thing, isn't it? Like I've experienced that there's an, there's an element of preciousness that can occur when you are like putting time and energy into building or like, you know, building arrows or setting stuff up, like 
definitely a funny thing that used to happen to me. I'm hoping it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> but if you spend a lot of money on, you know, getting the right shafts and, and getting everything and like building the arrows yourself. And I really actually do really enjoy painstakingly building, like being a real grain weenie, getting everything really like weighing perfect, lined up perfect. I, I really enjoy that. And it's as much the money spent on that stuff, but as also the time it takes to really carefully build those, there have definitely be moments where <laughs> when I'm hunting, maybe it's actually mm. more when I'm hunting in South Africa and I get a lot of opportunities, but like definitely moments I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I want to shoot an arrow at that thing because I might lose it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Yeah, too much preciousness. I think there were some guinea fowl or something up in a, like up in a, we call it a pylon, but I don't know what you would call that in the US, like in a, a power tower. Like, do you know what I mean? Like where the, the giant kind of- Like a cell or... tower kind of thing? Yes, exactly. But like for power lines, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, we just call them power lines. Power lines, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I was not prepared to take a shot, like a, a Hail Mary shot just up into amongst a yeah. bunch of <laughs> metal structure. I was like, nah, nah, sorry. That's <clears throat> that's not worth it. Um, But anyway- I wonder, is there like, we can jump onto the, the next, the next thing, but is there any other stuff, like any other like little things or Jesus? Oh, I remember you were talking about, I think you said to me before, when we spoke, talking about like adjusting for broadheads and field points and how they connect, you know, like that, that was yeah. the thing that you thought would be interesting to cover. Yeah. It's a, it's a quick point that I, I can, I can cover if you're, I get the call pretty much every day somebody my broadheads aren't flying with my field points um fixed blade broadheads aren't flying with my field points uh ask yourself are they are your broadheads hitting the same spot just away from your field points or are they hitting completely erratically if they're hitting completely erratically you haven't spine matched if <laughs> <laughs> if they're hitting the same spot just away from your field points just move your arrow rest touch towards towards your field point. So if your broadheads are hitting left and low, move your air rest. And I mean like a 64th of an inch to the right and up, and it'll bring them right together. Um, if, you know, if some people hear that on this podcast, it'll save me a number of phone calls and emails. So um, that's, it's what I, it's something that I want just to be general knowledge for people out there. This stuff shouldn't be hard to access this type of information. So You've already shared a bunch of uh, cool info and tips on how to set things up, but I'm curious because I've seen a bunch of cool hunts, like things that you've clearly done some amazing stuff, um, both in, in where, like where you're from in Alberta, but also in other places. Having like that, the confidence of knowing that you're, everything's completely set up and you're like ready to take the shot, bam, you know, get to that crucial moment. Are, are there any kind of stories or moments well, actually just in general, if there's any interesting hunts that you'd like want to share, but any moment where you're like, oh no, like my, my gear is set up right. I can take this shot. You know, I know that it's going to be good. Yeah. I've been overconfident in my equipment a number of times. Uh, <laughs> okay. Without question. Um, you know, when I was in, when I was in university and all I was doing was going to school, I had so much time. I shot literally two to 300 arrows every day through wow. the spring and summer. And it was way 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 too much uh, i remember i was i was going on my doll sheep hunt in the northwest territories and i was shooting two to three hundred arrows a day you know you have your good days you have your bad days but i knew all of this is going to come down to one shot on a doll sheep which is 
you know, it's a huge hunt. I'm traveling for it's, you know, it's, it's not like driving out to your whitetail stand, um, put way too much pressure on myself, uh, with, with that amount of shooting and took a too far shot, ended up, I'm not afraid to say it. I, I wounded a doll sheep, had to finish it with a rifle. And it was a combination of, I would say almost over preparation because I put too much pressure on myself to shoot hundreds of arrows a day. Your one shot better be perfect. So since then I've toned it down a lot and overconfidence. Um, I also remember a time where I won't get too into the details of it, but there was a white tail that came into my stand and I was in a period where my shooting was probably the best it had ever been. And I thought I could make a, I'm just going to call it a cocky shot. And I got lucky. What was it? I'm going to need, okay. We're going to go back to the other sheep's hunt in a second as well. But uh, what was, what would you define as like a cocky shot? A uh, frontal shot on a white tail is a cocky shot. Okay. So it was like quartering, yeah. like a quartering or just like front dead, front? dead front, head down. I thought I could put an arrow right there in the oh, back like, of the neck. Right in yeah. like a kind of spinal yeah. top top shot. Okay. Like through the rack of antlers. And it was 100% a cocky shot. And it worked out. I found my buck, took a few hundred yards to track, but I was embarrassed with myself. And um, I'm not afraid to say that on here. I mean, I got arrogant. I thought I was better than I was, and I made a stupid shot and got lucky. Um, but I don't know. Hopefully that answers the, the question. That <laughs> puts me in a loss for words, that one, but I shouldn't have done that. Well, I think we all, it's human nature, isn't it? Like we make mistakes. And also, at least I know how I am is definitely, it's, if you're new to something, and obviously you're not new to hunting at all, but like with anything I've experienced for me, I guess the analogy I make is if you're trying, like, say you're in a new space, like a new thing that you're learning, I put the analogy of it's like you're in a room. If you're in a, like a room with the lights off, the quickest way to figure out the dimensions of the, of the room is to run as fast as you can in all directions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's right. you, you hit, you know, you're going to hit some walls, but you'll figure it out quickly, which so, yeah, it's probably not always the right choice that we make, but I can definitely understand how, just thinking like that's the moment then you know take the shot like it's you don't know your limits until you try well there's there's so much of a non-human element involved in every successful hunt like i don't i don't care who you are how good or bad you are at hunting if you successfully kill an animal there was a huge amount of luck that went into it for all of us um i mean you can be you can make the best shot in the world and if that animal chooses to jump the string which they do all the time particularly on whitetail your perfect shot could be a wound or a miss like that. And it's nothing to do with you. Right. And that's, that's what happened to me. I, I got in the mindset of, I am, I'm good. I'm a good shot. I got my gear set up. I know I can make that shot. And if it was a pop can, I could have hit it. But, you know, since yes. then I've learned to, I've learned that I would way rather the miserable drive home with nothing than wounding something. Yes. So that's huge. And I think an aspect of this as well, it's interesting. You were talking about your, the first story that you said just now about your sheep hunt that didn't quite work out, right. That you, that you didn't make a good shot on because of the bit being like a long, it was a long range shot. Yeah. Like, first of all, how, how far was that shot? I'm curious. I don't know if you were prepared to share. Yeah, it was a little far. Um, but, uh, you, you get, uh, you get out on these types of hunts where, you've traveled so far to be there. You've 
you know, you've, you've been completely out of service for a week or 10 days, how much stuff you're missing at home. They're so hard to get close to these animals and you get 95% of the way there and you just like, screw it. I'm taking the shot. Yes. And it's man, I'm lucky. I did. I did bring that sheep home. I recovered it. I had to end up shooting with a rifle in the end. Um, and I, I got it sitting right over here. Um, but I'm thankful for those trophies that have, uh, or those animals that have taught me lessons. Yeah, that's right. If you can learn a lesson and not by making too much of a mistake, then that's always a good thing. But I think that's always a good thing, yeah. isn't it? Oh yeah. And then when you, when you do have a perfect one, like, like I shot a white tail doe the other night and it was just picture perfect, nothing wrong with that. Don't just take it for granted about everything that you put into it that made it go perfectly. That's as important or more important than learning from your mistakes. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I, I haven't shot that many animals, probably only, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so, but um, with a bow, I mean, <laughs> but like, I'm, I think maybe it's just in my nature. I'm like an absolute perfectionist. So I'm always annoyed that it didn't go better than it did i mean like it's very rarely the shot is like oh yeah no that was that was like perfect like there's yeah, always like rare. a bit of a oh it could be a little bit better this way it could be a little bit better that way but i guess it might be as much about i mean ultimately the job was done <laughs> you know so that's the good thing um so another thing i wanted to ask you about with the it was interesting you were talking about practicing loads getting like two or three hundred reps in a day like shooting arrows and I think that this is another aspect, which I don't know if you want to, like, if you up for talking about this, but like, I think it's true. The psychological part of shooting is an enormous thing, you know, and actually I did actually read like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Joel, Joel Turner and his, his teachings mm -hmm. about like mental processes and, and was it like, what is it called? Loop loop thinking? All right. Sorry. Forgive me, Joel. I'm sorry if you're hearing this and I'm massacring your ideas. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like there's an interesting thing that we can put a lot of time and a lot of effort into like physical preparation, but the mental stuff, it's, it's a crazy moment, right? When you next to an animal. Oh man, a hundred percent. Like, um, my, my old philosophy around shooting was go out and shoot as much as I can in a day. And if you're shooting bad, shoot through it. If you're shooting good, keep going until you're shooting bad. And it's just, it's not practical. I'm going to wear out my shoulders if I do that. Um, I go out now, if I shoot a dozen arrows and I'm just money, I go home. That's it. I call it a day. I know I'm fine. I always start at long range. I think that there, I think that too many people go out to the range and they start at 20 and then they go to 30 and then they go to 40 start at, you know, 74. Yes. And then take a shot at 51 and then take a shot at 13 and just stagger it. I never shoot. I very, very rarely shoot like an even number and I never shoot the same number twice. If I make a really bad shot, sometimes I'll give myself the redemption shot, but, <laughs> um, you know, practice philosophy is so big and it's, it's something that I haven't talked about on my YouTube or in anything that I put out there, but I'm, cause I'm trying to find the way to phrase it properly, but it's, it's a huge topic and I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. It's curious. I think it's, a good thing what you're saying and actually i like it when people say things that they do as i recommend as a good approach and i'm like oh yeah i do that too nice <laughs> so it's a yeah, nice like moment <laughs> so 
yeah i also often will start like a <laughs> first shot or first few shots are like 74 yards or you know like yeah. just just a real long shot in there and I, I mean i'm lucky enough to have a bit of space where i can take a shot like that i just walk out my front door and it's you know there's a paddock over there so i can take that shot but it, yeah i think that there is a strange thing that happens i can't explain exactly what it is but when you're shooting a really long range like that I mean, that's not, I guess, some would argue that's not very long range. That's right. <laughs> but for me, that's a pretty long way. Um, I, when you're shooting that far, there is a subtlety in your position, attention to detail. Everything gets fine, like gets amped. I don't know if it's extra bit of adrenaline or mm -hmm. it's like extra focus that's required, but it really, yep. you really have to focus on the every time of the like 15 <laughs> steps or 15 stages in, in that go into like taking that shot for some reason you just really have to like get that all figured out to take that shot straight away and then I, what i <clears throat> excuse me what i find is that if i've done that then i'm also in that mindset for the rest of the shots does that make sense oh 100 100 that makes sense i mean it's uh too too often people get into this idea that I have a $2,000 bow. I spent $300 in these arrows and I this and this and this. I'm going to go shoot 80 yards. Boom. It should be fine. That's like, man, I, I could shoot, I could shoot 80 yards with, with a $200 bow from Cabela's, right? You just have to have the, have to have the mental capacity to do it. And it, at the end of the day, it comes down to you, right? I, I really like to think about it in terms of baseball, right? pitchers every well i guess you're you're probably not a baseball guy being from the uk but i love baseball and yeah. all a pitcher is is an arm and a ball everyone has the same ball it comes down to your arm right yeah and that's that's archery that's archery in a nutshell yeah i guess your arm and your brain as well your arm and your brain and your <laughs> your mental state right you ask any pitcher why they had a bad day or a good day it's something up here that caused it and you know, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of blank bailing. So for those that don't know, blank bailing is basically all through the winter months when I don't like to go outside and shoot, I will tape up my site. I'll just put cardboard on both sides of it, tape it up duct tape so I can't see it. Oh, and then okay. I have a big, big uh, bail target in my basement that I set up and I stand like five yards away and I just shoot shot after shot after shot. I cover up my site because I don't want to be focusing on aiming. You already know how to aim. You can point your finger at something across the room. You know how to aim. You don't have to be taught that. You have to be taught and learn how to develop a shot process and a shot sequence. So that's what blank bailing does. You shoot at five yards without the ability to focus on aiming. All you're focusing on is your shot process. So um, that's something a lot of people could do. And um, anytime I give a lesson, I always forewarn people, we're not shooting outside, we're not shooting at range, we're shooting at five yards in my basement for an hour. And everyone's thrown off until they leave my house and they're like, wow, that was amazing. <laughs> so that's, that's a, yeah, blank bailing is awesome. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I've done it a little bit, but yeah. So talk me through what it, what it does. You're saying the process, but it, I guess in a way, the little that I've done it, it really helps you because you're not worried about aiming right it, that i think is that the thing your your focus goes to like trying to line up that circle around and that dot in that place so yep. it's like your brain immediately starts doing gymnastics yep so the second that you have a pin and a target your only focus is putting that pin on the target and it it's 
it's not you, it's your, it's your brain. It's something that's happening subconsciously, right? So we cover that up. We don't let you aim, take that away. Then we drill your shot process into you as much as we can so that you don't even have to think about it. Your hand position, you never think about it. You feel the trigger, anchor points, release. You don't even think about it. And then to tie this right back to what you were talking about, the mental aspect and what it takes to shoot long range versus close range. But now when you're shooting at long range, you're not even thinking about your shot process. All you're thinking about is that pin at 80 yards. Yes. Yeah. And also actually to kind of connect back to something you were saying before as well, um, John Dudley and his videos about shot sequencing and, you know, like the, whatever, I think it might be the 12 step process of breaking down each part of the shot. That feels like there's a similar kind of, um, motivation with that, right? Like, uh, cause that was actually what really made a difference to me. My shooting really improved after I started practicing in that way, where you actually, uh, breaking every part of the shot down into something that you can really focus on to, to a point where when you actually get to the moment, you don't, yeah, like you said, you're not thinking yep. about it. It just is happening. You know, like you are, you know, positioning, anchoring, yep. everything, everything is just running like clockwork so that you don't have to be getting into a spiral in your brain. Oh, a hundred percent. And like, I, I don't do any shot form videos on my channel because Dudley has it so well covered. Yeah. There's, you can tell when you watch someone shoot at a range, if they've learned to shoot from Dudley or not, like he's got that perfectly dialed. So I don't even touch that topic on YouTube. Um, but his idea is that you learn the process step-by-step step, think crucially about every step and then practice it. He's a huge proponent of blank bailing practice it in, incessantly until you don't have to think about it anymore. That's how you become a good archer. <laughs> good. Uh, there's all, all we can ever hope for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Just keep, keep working away. Yep. Awesome. Well, is there anything, I mean, I feel like we've covered so much today. Is there anything else, like any other stuff that you were hoping that I would ask you or you wanted to talk about? No, man, it was, uh, it's great to chat here. You're, uh, you're a good host and, uh, all I could say is just, you know, keep listening to Robin's stuff. Oh, um, thank you very much. Check out what I'm doing. I'm going, we're starting a podcast too. I'm going to have Robin on it because I need to take a chance to talk about some of the crazy stuff he's doing. He's going on a crazy trip here. Um, going to be hunting with some African bush people that we're going to talk about. So um, I, I want to have that opportunity with you. And uh, no, I'm just thankful you had me on. It was great. Oh, Thanks again, man. That was, that was great. It was really good to pick your brains and, um, yeah, my, my, like those 20 minutes we had as a phone call, uh, like a few weeks ago, I definitely could already tell like this was going to be a place where we could have a long chat about lots of details. So <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad to have got it done now. Oh yeah. We can start again um, right now if you want to and have a whole fresh one. <laughs> I could go all day, but, uh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get another, we'll get some more time in for sure. Okay. Perfect. Well, Thanks again, Lee. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So that wraps up another episode. Thanks again to Lee for sharing all his skills and stories. You can find Lee on YouTube through his channel with Tooth of the Arrow. Uh, you can also find him on Instagram at hauk.bowhunter. That's H-A-U-C-K dot bowhunter. Uh, as a single word, no hyphen there. 
but I'll put everything in the show notes too. If you're enjoying the show, feel free to tell a friend about it. More connections make for more conversations, which means more wild skills and stories arrive on this podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Welcome to the Wild Dispatch!